7.02. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Live, online. The 7.02 app, DSTV Channel 856, 92.7 and 106 FM. Coming up on the show today, the latest from the standoff at the Gold One Mine in Springs. Is it a sit-in? Is it a hostage situation? The IEC launches its campaign to get young people to vote in the elections. Could we see an ANC-DA coalition? Reports that secret talks are underway and South Africans are doubtful about Bongi Mbunangi's alleged racial slur. All of that over the next hour. 7.02. Let's walk the talk. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Midday Report on 702 and Cape Talk with me, Mandy Wiener. Good to be with you today. Sure, that story out of Kwamashu, very frightening indeed. Seven people believed to be allegedly criminals being shot dead in Kwamashu. I'm sure Becky Kele uh, will have something to say about that at uh, some point. Uh, but very worrying when we see those kinds of uh, shootings taking place. So we'll get the latest on that. Uh, various other stories that we're watching. Very interesting to uh, see this report in News 24. For today, we will speak to the editor-in-chief, Adrian Basson, about whether or not we could see an ANC-DA coalition. What are your thoughts on that? A scenario where we have the ANC in charge of government and the DA in charge of parliament playing an oversight role. Is that something you'd be comfortable with? Send us a WhatsApp voice note. 72 1502 Let's start the show with the situation at the Gold One Mine in Springs. Hundreds of mine workers still underground. There's a suggestion that it could be a hostage situation. There's also a suggestion that it's a, it's a sit-in. But as it stands, over 500 miners have not returned to the surface since Sunday. Gloria Motswere, EWN reporter, has the latest for us. So, so Gloria, what do we know about the situation? Good afternoon, Mandy. There's still conflicting reports in terms of whether this is a sit-in or it's actually a hostage situation. So what we are understanding right now is the fact that the, the all the workers are still underground and they're still trying to be some kind of negotiation just to figure out what the way forward is in this case. But um, the National Union of Mine Workers says that nine of the people that are underground have actually been injured. So that's where the problem is that they're saying, they are arguing that the people are not there willingly. They are being kept there against their will. And that's why there's people that are injured because they were trying to leave. So that's where the situation is right now. There hasn't been any solution to what's happening. Gold One has succeeded in interdicting the strike. So they, the Labour Court has granted an interdict against both AMCO and the National Union of Mine Workers. What do we know about, about this and, and how we could see the situation being resolved? So... Like you said, Goldmine did say that they did interdict the strike. But on Sunday, they are, they don't know what happened. But basically, those people didn't return from their shift. And they are saying that they are in communication with AMCU just to find out what is happening and what they can do to kind of sort out the situation. The issue right now is that they don't know whether or not these people have had access to food or water. So the state that they are in down there cannot be explained right now. Gloria, thank you very much. Uh, Gloria Motswere, EWN reporter with the latest on what we know. Uh, so we're going to hear from NUM and then we're going to hear from AMCO. Let's start off with the NUM Deputy General Secretary, Mpo Pakedi, giving the latest update. Have a listen to this. We are still here at uh, Gold One Mine. The development is that uh, we are still waiting to see how to intervene in making sure that workers are getting out underground. 
Um, so far, there's no solution as yet, but we're engaging with management, we're engaging with all stakeholders to find a solution. We are hopeful that by later tonight, we should be having a solution. Thank you. So that's the latest from NUM. Let's speak now to the AMCO General Secretary, Jeff Mpachlele. Mr. Mpachlele, good afternoon to you. Thank you for, for your time. As far as you're concerned, is this a, a hostage situation? There are suggestions that AMCO is holding these mine workers hostage by sealing off some of the exits. Is that accurate? Uh, it's inaccurate. It's not correct. And it needs to be rejected with all the content it deserves. The situation is this, that uh, the mine employs 1,870 uh, employees and AMCO has succeeded to gather around 1,700 new members from that mine who have signed their forms and say that we want AMCO to represent us, we want AMCO to be our union. So NUM and management are blocking all that. On so, the 29th, okay. Carry on. Sorry, carry on. Yes, on the 29th of March, we submitted 1,200 1, forms for, for, for management to consider as AMCO members. Management did not do anything. They said now they are consulting with NUM until today, where the number has reached 1,700 uh, membership of AMCO. So the challenge is that uh, we were close to unlock the situation last night. And then NUM came in. I don't know what they said to management. They sat there until 12, noon, 12 o'clock midnight, and there was no resolution after that. We then said to management, can we meet today on the 24th of October to resolve this situation amicably so? And please, can you organize food? Because underground there, yes, there are people who have various conditions. Others are on medication and there's no food. Those conditions down there are treacherous. They are not uh, humanly, what you call, uh, preferable. So this morning the plan has changed. NUM has just uh, surrounded the whole, what you call, with uh, their bodyguards, the whole office of management with their bodyguards. Management is afraid of talking to us. We are still waiting for management to come and, and, and call us so that we start the discussion as where we left off last night. But so, however, CCMA is intervening now with Section 150. I think we've got a meeting at 2. I'm right at the mind as we speak. We have no entry. NUM has just posted all their bodyguards there uh, around the Office of Management. We can't come in. So just for clarity, just so that I can understand this, Jeff, are you in yeah. support of the, um, the sit-in? by these mine workers? Is it an AMCO-supported sit-in? No, 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 no. AMCO, if you, in the history of the unions in South Africa, AMCO has been number one in doing everything according to book. When you apply for recognition or when you apply for Section 21 to get all right, we, 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 we recruit first and get the numbers and make arrangement with management that we request a Section 21 meeting. And then they allow us, we come and give them that we are a new organization, here is our certificate, and uh, this is what we are representing. Right. So then can you, can you recognize us? Then they took those 1,200 stopholder forms and said they are going to consult with NUM. We said, fine, consult, but this is urgent. Until now, that has not happened. Now, instead of management coming to AMCO, 
uh, we went to CCMA, and then CCMA granted us a certificate of uh, non-resolution, which okay. allowed us to go for a strike. And then we served them with uh, 48 hours on the 16th of October. And then on the, on the 19th, the strike, I mean, uh, yes, 19th, the strike uh, started. Then they ran to court to interdict that strike. They have interdicted the strike, but they have not interdicted the Section 21 discussion. So right. we want the organizational rights there. Jeff, thank you very much. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. Jeff Mbachlele, who is the AMCO General Secretary, he says there's a meeting at 2 o'clock, the CCMA getting involved. Well, let's find out now from John Hericourt, who is the Gold One spokesperson who joins us uh, on the line. John, good afternoon to you. Thank you for making time to speak to us. Firstly, what is the status of these mine workers who are underground? Do we know what their condition is? Um, look, we, we've had occasional um, reports from people who are able to um, get to a telephone sometimes. And um, what, what we've heard is that in general, the people are okay. The people, uh, there were some people who, uh, who sustained some uh, minor injuries and that. But uh, they say in general, the people are okay. But, you know, they are now, they're, they're very tired. They're very stressed. They're very hungry they want to they want to come out of the mine and they want to know when this is going to happen because they are being prevented from coming out of the mine so yeah it's uh, it's obviously it's not an ideal environment to be in um and it's uh, they they have water available um we are sending down medical supplies at regular intervals because we do know um um you know that some of our employees are are on the older side some of them require specific medication we have got two um paramedics who are underground with them um we know that the the people are allowed are being allowed to to move around reasonably freely in a in a specific area of the mine but um they are not allowed to to access either the shaft or the decline to leave the the underground workings that's currently okay john um i'm cool we just spoke to the general secretary insisting that this is uh, absolutely not a hostage situation and they have not sealed off uh, the the exits as has been reported as far as uh, gold one is concerned how would you define this is this a sit-in or a hostage situation no this is this is a this is a hostage situation and and you know, it's uh, it's interesting that he says that because we were in meetings with with himself and various other senior members from AMCU yesterday, where they were talking the same language as we are. That there are that there are member their members are holding people hostage. We need to go uh, sort out a way where we can where they can go underground and go and get those their members to release those people. However, they they insisted that the condition for them to do that is that we immediately recognize them as the as the um as the only representative union on the mine so for them to say that this is a is a sit-in it's not a sit-in in any in any terms of the word it is a small group of probably around about 120 people who are holding maybe about 350 400 people underground and they are preventing them from coming out otherwise those people would have been out long ago and we have we have confirmed that over and over again with different sources different people underground different people who are there underground we even know there was uh, one of the people who was injured underground was reasonably serious 
after a lot of um, discussion, negotiation, we were told by the people underground we can send down somebody to come and get this guy so that we can bring him to surface and take him for medical attention. We sent a security officer with another paramedic. We have a paramedic always on shift, but we sent another one down specifically to go and get this injured person. As soon as they arrived on the station, they were taken hostage, and they are also underground now with the rest of the people. So they did not go underground to go and join the city. They went to go mm. and, and, and bring an injured right. person to surface, and they they are now underground Um Fortunately, yes, the two paramedics are being able to assist um, with looking after the people. But obviously, the people are, um, you know, it's its not, it's a very stressful environment to be in. Right. And obviously, a very stressful situation mm. to be in. John, thank but you very much. Not, but it is not a sit-in. It's a, it's a hostage situation. John, thank you very much. John Herricourt speaking to us there, the Gold One spokesperson. So uh, there you have it from uh, um, Gold One. You have it from Amco. You have it from NUM as well. As things stand at the moment, those mine workers remain underground and that needs to be remedied soon. 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m. The Independent Election Commission today officially launching elections 2024 by launching a campaign to mobilize young people to go out and vote. That's going to be crucial in next year's elections. Sai Mamabolo, the IEC commissioner, speaking earlier, saying the majority of people registering on their portal are young people, which is a good thing. As we predicted, the majority of new registrations on the portal are young persons in the age category 20 to 25. And the use of the portal is not different during the day and in the evening. So there's a fair distribution of accessing the portal during the day and in the evening hours. We believe that the portal offers citizens a convenient avenue to to enlist on the voters' role. Of course, We acknowledge a constraint relating to data costs for a significant proportion of society. In this regard, we are engaging with telecommunications company to examine possibilities of zero rating this online facility ahead of the elections. Currently, the voter's role stands at 26.2 million people. Of this, 95% have a complete address recorded against their name. Women have a greater representation on the voters' roll at 14.4 million against men whose representation is 11.6 million. As we predict... Well, that's uh, the IEC commissioner speaking there. Let's speak to Tiri Madia, EWN's associate politics editor, to find out more about today's launch. Tiri, good afternoon to you. Uh, the IEC wants young people to go out and vote. This is going to be crucial when it comes to the elections next year. Absolutely. Good afternoon, Mandy. I think as an advocate charts the way forward, and it's a sentiment that's mentioned here quite often, that as the country charts 30, marks 30 years of democracy next year, it's important to chart the way forward and that can't happen without civic participation, saying that young South Africans must stand up and participate. Political parties will here also echo the sentiment, saying professionals must stand up and participate. They must also volunteer to give service to assist the country in making sure we deliver free and fair elections come next year. And how's it looking in terms of actually getting people out there to register? 
I think the big test, the big litmus test really will be that 18th and 19th of November where they've gotten tons of volunteers to come on board already. They've got the material ready, they say, that that's when they'll test what they'll be able to do. Those particular um, registration weekends is critical, but it is the first of possibly two with one happening next year. So that will be the litmus test where they'll see where they need to go, what they haven't done properly, and what else needs to be done. I think 58,000 people, man, they have been recruited. They are currently training people in order to assist during that registration period, and that's where they're hoping to see a massive uptake. And as you heard Sam Amabul speaking earlier, that the device, um, the, the app, rather, has been helpful in getting young people to register and speak about ways to make it even easier for young people. I do know that they've been speaking to media houses. Again, the campaign is to get young people to take to the polls in order to participate. At the moment, it's a group between the 30 and 39-year-olds who are mm. mostly uh, dominating the voters' role, which represents over 6 million of the voters. City, thank you very much. City Madia, EWN Associate Politics Editor that launched today uh, by the IEC. So we are very much now uh, entering election season. As I said yesterday on air, everything that happens in this country will now be viewed through the prism of the election. So a very interesting take on News 24 today uh, from the Editor-in-Chief Adrian Basson, who uh, in his just published book with Juanita Hunter uh, has... has um, told us that, and the book is called Who Will Rule South Africa, just in case you would like to go and get it, says that there are secret talks underway between the ANC and the DA to form a coalition after the 2024 elections. What would that look like? Well, it could look like the ANC being in charge of government and the DA being in charge of parliament. Adrian Basson, the editor-in-chief of News24, joining us now to unpack this. Adrian, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, you make this revelation in your book with Quinn to answer that there are these secret talks. What do we know about them? Good afternoon, Mandy. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I think uh, election season is really buzzing now, and we're going to hear more of these stories as we get closer to mid next year. Um, you know, in the book, we try to sketch a number of scenarios about what could happen in South Africa after the election and who could be in charge of the country. And one of the most fascinating discoveries that my colleague Juanita made during her research was that there are these talks underway between the DA and the ANC, whereby um, the DA basically, in, in exchange for the electoral support to elect an ANC president and cabinet, the DA then gets um, control of the legislature, of parliament, of the lawmaking and the oversight and accountability arm of the state, uh, which is a, a very unique and interesting take on things because until now, you know, whenever we spoke about the possibility of a coalition. Both parties obviously still um, on the record deny that they would do this. Um, but the options are really getting very few for the ANC specifically. You know, if they did below 50%, as is widely expected, the options become very limited. And and, and it's interesting that, that there are these interesting discussions underway. There doesn't see political parties splitting up the mm. portfolios, as we've seen in the metros, but actually the arms of the state. And what would that look like? So from what I understand, it would look like the, the DA being in charge of the, the whips of the various committees and having the Speaker in the National Assembly, and then they would then have oversight uh, over government. Is this really um, effective as an option? Before I get there, just maybe to, to qualify, I think this, this scenario really only comes into play, Mandy, if the ANC scores in the low 40s, so below 45% next year. Now, the Brentus Foundation was the most recent poll that was released um, last week, and they've got the ANC at 41% of support at the moment. 
So um, that is um, that. That for me, um, this scenario comes into play if the ANC goes below 45, because then the, suddenly they need a few parties to become governing parties, and it becomes messy if it's a few small parties. So then it's either the DA or the EFF that the ANC will have to co-govern with if the results turn out the way it's predicted to be. Um, in this scenario, the DA would take charge of Parliament, so that would be, mean a DA speaker, Mandy, for example, um, DA chairpersons of portfolio committees, of standing committees in Parliament. Now, these committees actually have vast oversight powers. They can call ministers to account. They can in- initiate forensic investigations. They can um, initiate or, or, or recommend suspensions. They can lay criminal charges. So it's actually a very effective tool that the ANC has not been using very well over the past two decades. Um, is, is Parliament in that oversight role. Also, when legislation is passed. So I think it could be a very interesting um, uh, uh, style. Mm. And I think it could possibly, if we get to that point, be something that both parties could sell to the, to the electorate because I think the alternatives are just too ghastly to contemplate. And, and as you say, Adrian, it's just one of the scenarios. So there are other scenarios that, that we can look at as well. Uh, you mentioned the Brenthurst Foundation poll putting the ANC at 41%. It also puts the EFF at a, at a whopping 17%, which yeah. is very high. There are other polls which puts the um, uh, the the ANC higher than 41, so closer to 48, 49. And then we see other scenarios playing out, like a coalition, as we see in Joburg, with smaller parties, or alternatively, the ANC going into power with the EFF. Yeah, I think the the the, the permutations are getting smaller, Mandy, because the ANC is going to get uh, around 50 the low, I, I think, in the, in the 40s. Um, I've, I've seen all the polls saying that they're putting them somewhere in the 40s. Their own poll um, last year, December, um, uh, former president, Deputy President Didi Mabuza said put, they had them at 40%. And then Fikilian Balula, the Secretary General, earlier this year said even below 40 So the ANC has to do a lot of work just to get over that 40 mark and to stay in the mid-40s which will then see them partnering with a few smaller parties, I think, if they get up to, say, 47 48%. But in a scenario where they go down into the lower 40s and they need 7 8 9%, suddenly it becomes very hard to get that support from the small parties. And you're going to have to make a deal with either the DA or the EFF. Adrian, thank you so much. Uh, Adrian Basson is the Editor-in-Chief of News24. If you'd like to go and buy his book with Juanita Hunter, it is called Who Will Rule South Africa? The Demise of the ANC and the Rise of the New Democracy. Uh, hopefully we'll try and feature that on, on our book feature as well so you can hear more about it. But various scenarios playing out there. Uh, and I asked the question earlier, how would you feel about the ANC going into coalition with the DA? And as Adrian makes the point, he says that... They're unlikely bedfellows, but someone must make the bed. And if it's not them, then who? And we can absolutely expect the ANC and the DA not to confirm this until the elections. It would be something that they would only discuss after the election. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Hi, Mandy. With regards to the DA, uh, ANC coalition or partnership, how would that work? As a normal citizen, my understanding is is that that the DA is the official opposition and that already puts them in an oversight capacity in Parliament. Uh, They're the official opposition. I fail to understand how that would work out on a practical level. Maybe we need some further explanation how that type of a partnership would actually unfold. Thanks, Mandy. Bye. It's Patricia.
Hi, Mandy. On the topic of an ANC-DA coalition, I think the DA in particular would be would do well to remember that for many people, myself included, that we vote DA because we have no choice. There's nobody else for us to vote for. I don't support the EFF. The ANC is hopelessly lost. Um, and that leaves nobody really for us to vote for, um, except the DA. Um, but if the DA were to go into coalition with the ANC, no chance. I wouldn't vote for them. Not a chance. Hi, uh, Mandy. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised. It's not many in Pretoria. I think we shouldn't be surprised that uh, the ANC isn't secret talks with the DA. I think uh, this story was once at a time uh, related by the former SG of the ANC, Mr. Mahashwilo, when he was angry that the councillors of the ANC among whom voted in favour of the DA. So that very situation uh, will now repeat itself at national, especially with Ramaphosa at the helm. He has known to be causing uh, in good relations with, with the whites and the uh, capital uh, in, in the in business industry. Thank you very much for those uh, WhatsApp voice notes reflecting on the possibility uh, that we could see an ANC uh, DA coalition taking place. That conversation with Adrian Basson, who with Juanita Hunter in their book suggests that there are secret talks taking place. And remember, we only see this hypothetical scenario playing out if the ANC goes into the low 40s. So uh, a 41, 42 as an example. If they get high 40s, it's not so likely. Um, and then also uh, keep in mind that there are ANC leaders who do support Cyril Ramaphosa who would prefer a deal with the DA over the EFF. Um, But if they go into the high 40s or mid 40s, then we could see a coalition with smaller parties or potentially with uh, the EFF as well. When you say there's no other parties to vote for, I mean, there's a multitude of parties. I can hear Herman Mashaba screaming at his radio already. Um, So there are other options, but I always say, choose the political party that is least bad and vote for that one, but vote. 702, the midday report. Monday to Friday. 12 to 1 p.m. Let's go to Parliament now because there's an update by the Minister of Higher Education to SCOPA on the National Skills Fund and the NSFAS investigations. The big breaking news coming out just before we went on air is the fact that the NSFAS CEO has been fired by the board. We know that there's been allegations of uh, tenders being uh, sent in the wrong direction, to put it uh, euphemistically. Babalo and Denze, EWN reporter, following that story for us. Babalo, uh, what is the latest on NSFAS? Ah, yes, indeed. Um, as you've correctly noted, um, the CEO, Andy Nongoko has been fired by the board. And, you know, this follows uh, a number of issues related to the payment scheme or the disbursement of, you know, funds to students and service providers involved in that process. Um, and there are also, you know, investigations by, um, you know, um, forensic investigators or service providers that were, um, you know, um, co- um, commissioned by the by NSS and the department that also found serious problems. Mr. Bladen's Monday, they, you know, giving a, an update saying that a, a large part of the problems with NSFAS are actually derived from the new scheme that is to be implemented. He says this was a massive shift and it basically changed from a loan system to a bursary system and also increased the threshold. So massive policy issues that have been, um, you know, involved in this whole thing. And he says himself that he's not criticizing anyone specific, but it's quite obvious who he's referring to. And he says there was no way that the entity was going to change the way it does its business in two weeks and change its IT system in such a short period of time. And this created a massive logjam. And this is really at the center of the problems. Um, but the minister does note, however, Mandy, that, you know, NSS has received an unqualified audit, which is a significant achievement, he says. 
um, and he says there may be delays in the annual annual financial statements being released, but you know this has been informed to the National Assembly. But the challenge of the IT system, a real problem, and this is what mm. seems to have led to the firing of the, the former CEO now, Mandy. The board chairperson, Ernest Koza, telling uh, Scopa that uh, this decision was taken just last night, the decision to fire the, the CEO amidst this 47 billion rand payments scandal. But by law, did this seem to satisfy uh, Scopa that sufficient action had been taken in light of the scandal? Well, Scopa, a lot of questions being posed by Scopa. You know, I mean, even the chairperson saying to members that, you know, they have so many questions to ask Scopa, to ask Ennisfus that it's not really a hearing. We're just getting an update from, um, you know, the entity as well as the minister. But a lot of questions, you know, from Scopa around the payment system and how, you know, it was allowed to get to such a point where there are these problems now at this point, these massive delays and these policy, not just policy issues, but, you know, actual IT issues. So a lot of problems, a lot of questions actually, Mandy, by, by all parties raising concerns and putting a lot of the questions not to the National Skills Fund, which is also present at the meeting, but mostly to, to Anasfus and the minister and how this, this problem can be resolved. And I see they still bring those questions to the entities, which will then respond to, to these specific issues raised by members, Mandy. Babalo, thank you very much. Babalo and Denze, EWN reporter in Parliament with that uh, breaking news coming out of that briefing uh, or that um, appearance before SCOPA, the Standing Committee on Public Accounts, that the National Student Financial Aid Scheme, NSFACIO, Andile Nongongo, has now been fired amidst that payments scandal. 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m. Uh, two big court cases we are watching today. The one is in the Eastern Cape, the owners of the Enyobeni Tavern, where 21 people died in June last year, back in the East London Regional Court today. Uh, they are accused of allowing minors into the tavern and of selling alcohol to them. So that's the one court case we are watching. The other is, of course, the Senzo Miyua trial, which uh, is still hearing about uh, a confession that was allegedly made by one of the accused and a pointing out that he apparently made as well. Somadise, EWN reporter in court for us. So, Hamoto, good afternoon to you. Give us a, an update on what's happening today. Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, the Lieutenant Colonel, um, who has been testifying from yesterday around the pointing out, has returned uh, to the witness stand. We've been hearing uh, from the Colonel, um, uh, who has been just uh, detailing to the court what happened at the Alberton police station when he fetched Muzgal um, Kudela Svia. He insists all his rights were read to him. Now, this was during cross-examination by the lawyer for Sevilla, uh, advocate uh, Mugomet Zudu. And so we've heard the Lieutenant Colonel Hatere saying that he made sure the rights were read to Sevilla, and Sevilla still decided to go ahead with the pointing out. We've heard from him also speaking about how part of the statement that he um, deposed of, or the pro forma statement, which is that, that a statement that deals with the rights, actually had some errors. And the defense has really capitalized on this, Mandy, saying the date was wrong on that pro forma statement and there was no time that she collected or that he collected um, uh, Sevilla from the police station listed on that pro forma. And so the defense is coming to say this paperwork really is inadmissible and shows shoddy work by the police. But Hatteva says it's human error, and he says that the court needs to confirm what time he was picked up. They can merely ask him, and he will then detail what happened on that day. Now, we've heard the cross-examination by the lawyer for Sia um, run its course, and Sia, uh, or rather the representative for Sia, that's uh, um, Gomez, 
has completed his cross-examination now, Mandy, and the lawyer for accused number three, that's advocate Denise, has started cross-examining the lieutenant colonel. Now, while that was happening, Mandy, um, it was then established that one of the statements that, uh, that the lieutenant colonel had deposed of has not been given to the defense. None of the defense lawyers have that statement. And so we've run into another stop, and um, we've had to halt proceedings. The judge saying, in the interest of a fair trial, uh, we cannot continue until the defense has been given that statement that was supposed of by the Lieutenant Colonel Hadebe in June 2020. Khamotso, thank you for that uh, update. Khamotso Modise, EWN reporter in court for us, giving us the latest there on the Senzo Miyua trial. Services. WhatsApp Mandy on 072-702-1702. Mandy, I am black, Mandy, but I support the coalition of DA and ANC. You know, people will come and say, yeah, but hey, what people this, what people that, you should go for EFF. I will never, I will never support EFF in any day. I don't agree with anything that Julius Malema is doing, racist, disrespecting everyone. I will never, ever support Julius Malema in my life because I'm black. Never. Hi, Mandy. I would much rather see the ANC get into bed with the DA than with the EFF. Um, uh, The lesser of two evils. Um, Should they get into bed with the DA, at least there would be one sane head prevailing. We would be in a whole lot of trouble if the ANC and the EFF got into bed together. Hi Mandy, I quite like the idea of a coalition between the ANC and the DA. I actually don't have any specific party that I feel would represent me. Um, I hate both parties, but I feel like the two of them together, that could be something worth looking at um, because otherwise there's no party that really speaks to me at all. Hey, and just remember, we are throwing around hypothetical scenarios here. It comes down to, to the numbers, and there are various iterations of what we could see. Uh, there is a poll out from the Brenthurst Foundation last week that puts the ANC at about 41%. And remember, there's only the scenario of the ANC going into a coalition with the DA if we do uh, see the ANC coming down that low. Uh, and, and that is a possibility that we could see happening. But there are various other scenarios as well. And I'm sure that we're going to be discussing these and mulling them over. What would it look like? I suppose the question really is, uh, can the DA sell this to its supporters? The DA will never confirm at this stage that there could be these kinds of talks going on, I imagine, um, because it is super risky, right? Um, because some DA supporters might not be supporting this idea of going into a, a coalition. I don't even know if a coalition is, is the right word to use because you would see the ANC in charge of government and the DA being in charge of parliament, uh, having control over uh, the National Assembly with the Speaker uh, and the whips as well. Uh, but it is, I think, at least innovative. And we need to have innovative, creative ideas when it comes to solutions in this country. We can't have old, staid ideas. We need to think creatively about how to solve our problems. 702. The Midday Report with Mandy Weiner. Let's walk the talk.
Listen, some would argue that the biggest problem we have in South Africa right now is whether or not we are going to have a, a first-class hooker uh, running out for the Springboks on Saturday with concerns around Bongi Mbonambi and the investigation now underway by World Rugby over this alleged racial slur. Um, and it's very hard to discuss this on the wireless, I have to say, because I cannot say what the alleged racial slur was. What I can say is that there's been lots of discussion about the fact that Bongi Mbonambi and the team speaks Afrikaans. Uh, and the audio that has now come out is that they, they speak Afrikaans while they're on the field. The audio has now come out, which sounds like Bongi Mbonambi saying, Vaid Kant, which means wide side. Um, and uh, Or he could be saying, Vit Kant, which means white side. Uh, so that's where the, the complications, this is very difficult. I hope you have a lot of sympathy for me. Uh, Mark Johane, rugby columnist, rugby writer, joining us uh, to unpack what this all means now. Mark, good afternoon to you. Um, try not to get us uh, taken to the BCCSA, if you can, please. Uh, but where are we at the moment in terms of Bongi Mbanami, his availability in this investigation that's underway? Yeah, at the moment, I mean, he's available. He'll be selected. He will start. I just think it's uh, it's wholly unfair uh, that World Rugby hasn't come out and either uh, charged him uh, if they feel there is something there or just dismissed it because we should be talking about South Africa playing the All Blacks in the final. We're talking about Tom Curry, uh, whose team came off second best in the semifinal and we on Tuesday already. It was uh, a player's interpretation of what he heard. Uh, it's so off the mark. Uh, get on with it and uh, and let's move on. Um, there's nothing that seems to uh, to indicate that there was any form of racial slur towards him. And yeah, I mean, the, the, especially when we play against England, we're always going to be speaking Afrikaans. And as you say, everything points to it being Vitkan, the white side uh, of where the ball is going, the penalty and all that, and in the heat of the moment. So um, yeah, I was very surprised when I saw it post the game and then also the coyness of the English players. Tom Curry making a scene about it, then saying he's no comment, then the RFU saying they're just ignoring it, then they're lodging a complaint, then they're not, and then World Rugby, with, uh, with nothing substantiated, then decides to launch their own campaign. And it's kind of like, you, we've got to accept that South Africa's not the most popular team when it comes to World Rugby. They still mm-hmm. haven't gotten the Lions tour and the Rassi Rasmus kind of uh, video. And uh, so it's, it's a bit of, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's got a nasty after smell in terms of, Sour losers and uh, World Rugby kind of playing again to a side like England. This thing should have been dismissed. And if there was some validity to it, deal with it within 24 hours and get on with it. Uh, the fact that they're letting it stretch, they don't want to make any comments. They're allowing this thing to fuel. And um, you just have to look at the UK coverage. They had condemned Bongi uh, 25 minutes after the game. Mm. Uh, you know, and uh, and they carry a lot of weight on social media, the Northern uh, Rugby media, and they, they carry a lot of weight among those who work for World Rugby. So I think very unfair towards the player, absolutely unfair towards uh, towards South Africa. And in jest, I've always said, uh, if he did say something like that, where's the inaccuracy when you see what kind of uh, player and personality Tom Curry is? Yeah, and certainly, as you've suggested, it does seem as though there is something sinister about this investigation uh, by by World Rugby. You pointed to the way that Rusty was treated during the, the Lions tour. Uh, do you think that there needs to be some kind of introspection, some kind of overhaul by World Rugby, just generally in terms of the perceptions that have been created and, and how certain teams are treated and how certain captains, for example, uh, uh, have, have been treated in the past? No, completely. You know, and what there needs to be is absolutely... Uh, absolute clear communication. Uh, 
you know, it's just they, they've allowed this situation of the last 48 hours to fester to something that it's not and should never have been. And they need to take accountability. Equally, the English team, you're out of the World Cup. You're not playing in the final. You're going to the, the secondary dance, which is third and fourth. Get on with it. Offer the apology. There was no malice. There was no intent. There was no racial slur. And let's focus on a World Cup final against two of the greatest foes in the history of the game. Uh, Mark, just lastly, uh, do you think this is going to impact the Springboks and their preparation at all uh, going into the final this weekend? Uh, if by some kind of weird uh, circumstance they find something and he doesn't play, they would impact it. But other than that, no, it just galvanizes the team. And I think they're an experienced side. Six years they've been together. They know how to cut out the noise and focus on kind of what they have to do over 80, 82 minutes to win that final. Mark Yohain, a rugby writer, thank you so much for your analysis and for unpacking all of that uh, for us. An explanation there of where we are at the moment when it comes to Bongi Mbunambi. Uh, good luck to you trying to send me a WhatsApp voice note without uh, getting anyone into trouble. It is a very difficult topic to speak about on the radio. 702, the midday report, Monday to Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. Uh, as we came on air today, you heard that uh, breaking news in EWN, KwaZulu-Natal police saying that seven people have been found dead under a bridge in Kwamashu in an alleged vigilante attack. The police spokesperson saying the men were accused of being involved in criminal activities in the township. And I said when we came on air that it's terrible to see a shooting like this. And I've been receiving WhatsApp voice notes saying, why is it terrible? They are suspected criminals. Uh, I'm sorry, but it's never, I, I personally think, uh, that it's never a, a nice thing to see. And Klantlamabasu, EWN KZN reporter with the latest on this. And Klantla, good afternoon to you. What do we know about this uh, shooting that's taken place in Kwamashu? Well, Mandy, police still allege that it was an act of vigilantism and that they are still investigating as to what may have led to the actual uh, shooting of the seven suspects. But we do know that these are people who are alleged to have been living under a railway bridge and they are alleged that they've been involved in criminal activities in and around Kwamashu and neighboring areas like Ntuzuma and Inanda. They were shot dead last night. Um, there are allegations on the ground that the person who shot them was someone who was mugged and was paying revenge, but police have not confirmed the thing that their investigations are still ongoing. But we are in the area now, I mean, I can tell you that business is as usual here. People are continuing. This happened just right next to the taxi rank that transports people to Phoenix, Inanda, and other neighboring areas. And we will be shortly speaking to CPF uh, members just to get a sense of really uh, the crime in this area, we do know that these areas are notorious for crimes like gang violence, hijacking and mugging of people. But what raises more eyebrows mainly is that this month alone, this is the fifth mass shooting incident that takes place here. You recall that a week ago, there were two different others in neighboring Uzuma where a member of the NIU was killed, mainly. What is the sentiment of the, the people that you're speaking to there, the community, if this was a vigilante attacker? Or do they feel strongly about it in terms of uh, what criminals are doing? Do they, do they support this? Maybe there's a great sense of um, a fear from people here with regards to speaking with the media, hence why our only uh, option now would be the CPF methods, but one can read the, 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 the sense of tensions when driving and walking in and around uh, this community because one can tell that people are very uncomfortable given the fact that it's usually, like I mentioned, it's a busy area, but the, how quiet it is um, uh, here, Mandy. I mean, this year alone, I've been to this community over 10 times for different shooting incidents. I mean, uh, uh, two months ago, two people were just working uh, on a cell phone tower 
with a, a, a two security guards from a, a, another security company. Those security guards were shot and killed in this area just next to the hostel. Again, we're here with Police Minister Pevitele raiding these hostels and neighboring houses. And just three minutes after we had left, a pastor was shot dead. There was two different shooting incidents that the police minister also attended. Some robbed stores, but then they were shot with police. But what raises more fears from community members, from what we've previously spoken to them about, is the issue of these alleged criminals being the first to shoot at police. But while we do know that this one was not anyhow linked to police, but there's that great fear that even when police try to fight crime here, they're met with bullets. Ntlantla, thank you very much. Ntlantla Mabaso, EWN KZN reporter, speaking to us there uh, from near the scene of that shooting in Kwamashu, where seven people who are believed to be criminals were killed in an alleged vigilante attack. The Midday Report. So don't forget, as things stand at the moment, about 543 miners are still underground uh, at the Gold One Mine in spring. So we're watching that situation closely. There's supposed to be a meeting at the CCMA at 2 o'clock. So hopefully that uh, that standoff, uh, sit-in, a hostage situation, whichever side you're on, that it's at least resolved.